Coming up on Tech Nation, bet you can't name the best-selling vehicle on the road year after year. It's the F-150 pickup truck from Ford. I speak with Sandy Fershey, the lab director for D Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. We talk about the latest design updates and how they went about it. Then Brian Cully, the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics in San Diego, tells us what cell therapy is in plain words. They're working on dry, age-related macular degeneration, spinal cord injury, and a new idea to create lifetime immunity against COVID-19. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, UCLA professor Jared Diamond talked to me about his book, The World Until Yesterday, What We Can Learn from Traditional Societies. What happened 11,000 years ago was the origins of farming which meant enormous increase in population because from a wheat field you get far more food than gathering in the forest. But once you get a large population, you start encountering strangers, you need a government, you can support a government, you need laws, and you have formalized wars rather than chronic wars. So stuff changed beginning 11,000 years ago. But there are plenty of societies that in modern times still do not have centralized government to remind us of what traditional societies were like. Now, the lives and the goals of humans, you know, before and after, as you read your book, you realize they're not that much different. They, that's to say people in traditional society, they have children, they have arguments, they have old people that they have to deal with. There are dangers that they have to be aware of. They have religion. They have languages. They have multiple languages. Yeah, so they have these common human problems, which means that no matter how exotic they seem, maybe we can learn from them. And let's start with the role of older people, um, you know, in terms of value within the totality of society. I mean, that, that certainly has changed. Yeah, that has changed. The most obvious change in the value of old people is that traditionally, before there was writing, old people were the repositories of information. If you wanted to learn something, you asked an old person. Today, if you want to learn something, you look it up in a book or newspaper or turn on the radio or you Google it. So that means a big loss in value of old people. Well, it's interesting as well. I think it's not just the facts. It's the is what maturity brings you in terms of the consequences of things and the importance of being together and, you know, a whole lot of things that doesn't really come through in the Google facts. That's true. And I, at age 75, am not going to end that discussion by saying that old people have lost a lot of their value. They've gained in value precisely because the rate of technological change today is so rapid. Yet it's perfectly true that I can't turn on my television set. I have to call my sons to talk me through the wretched 41-button remote. But it's also true that conditions have changed so markedly, but some of those old conditions could come back that, for example, it's only older Americans who know the experience of a world war or a Great Depression. And that's the value that old people have 
even more today because of the rapid rate of, of change, which means it's only the old people who have experience of conditions that could come back. Some characterizations of traditional societies continue through the modern era, and, and certainly if we take China as an example, here's a society in which the elderly were very well respected and has been a tradition. You point out that's beginning to erode. My Chinese and Japanese friends tell me that there have been big changes in the last several decades in China and in Japan. I believe it was the case until maybe the 1950s that Chinese had an obligation to care for their old parents, a legal obligation. That's no longer the case. In Japan, my wife has Japanese cousins, so we know a good deal about life in Japan. Fifty years ago, the majority of marriages in Japan were arranged, not by the couple, but by the relatives. Now, as in the U.S., people date and they arrange their own marriages. But ironically, in Japan, this shift from an arranged marriage to a negotiate-yourself marriage has coincided with the arrival of electronic media, which means that young Japanese lack the social skills. And my wife's cousin told us of being in a restaurant in Japan where there was a couple obviously there on their first date, and they were very shy, and they were opposite sides of the table. They weren't talking to each other. They were texting each other because they hadn't (laughs) learned the social skills to talk with each other. You perhaps know UCLA professor Jared Diamond Best as the author of 1997's Guns, Germs, and Steel, or his first book, The Third Chimpanzee. I was able to speak with Professor Diamond about the world until yesterday on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, if you don't own an F-150 pickup truck from Ford, you know someone who does. It's the best-selling vehicle ever. I speak with Sandy Fershey, the lab director for D. Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. We talk about how they came up with their latest design features. Then Brian Cully, the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics in San Diego, talks cell therapy and their work in dry age-related macular degeneration, spinal cord injury, and an idea on how to create lifetime immunity against COVID-19. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Sandy Fershey, the lab director for D. Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. Well, Sandy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I was doing preparation for this interview, and I live in San Francisco. You know, you don't think of this as pickup truck country, but there are Ford F-150 pickup trucks everywhere. And then I learned that it is the best-selling vehicle every year since 1981. Not just pickup trucks. It is the best-selling vehicle. I was stunned. 
Yes, it has been an incredibly successful product um, for Ford and just widely adopted and used for a variety of purposes uh, for, for people, whether it's work or play. So it's, it's incredibly wildly popular and successful for the business and, and just in the world. And I have to say, I was a little shocked when I read that you guys had made a number of design changes. As an engineer, you got a great product. It's selling well. It's like, what are you thinking? Don't change this product. What what did you change? How did you go about it? That's a great question because, I mean, one of the interesting things is that when you do have a really successful product, there's that question or the pressure of, well, how do we make sure next year we continue to be the best-selling vehicle and the best-selling truck? So there's an incredible amount of pressure on that. And we know the things that are successful, but we also have to push toward the future. And so in this particular version of the F-150, we had an opportunity to push it further. Um, you know, in the past, we had done some groundbreaking work with introducing the aluminum F-150 and, you know, it does take vision, it takes commitment and a little bit of risk taking to make those decisions and push them forward because the production uh, cycle times are quite long for automotive vehicles. And so in this instance, we had an opportunity to say, what's next? There were some big questions. There were some hypotheses. So what we did as part of DFORD, our human-centered design organization, working with our marketing teams, our designers, our engineers, to really go and explore what could be next. And for us, that means that we go and spend a lot of time with our customers. We are living with them, immersing ourselves in their lives. And this means at home, at work, and out in the wild, literally. This sounds sounds so frightening. You know, it's like, I thought I just bought a truck. What are all these people doing here? <laughs> but obviously it was targeted. They knew you were coming, you know. So Absolutely. <laughs> these, were, these were ready, willing volunteers who said, yeah, I'd love to share my truck life with you. <laughs> <laughs> now, now give us some examples. What did you do? How did you observe it? What might you change? What did you learn? So yeah, we went out and, and and again, we were observing and we were in various places around the country. What we did was watch people observe directly what they're doing, how they're behaving, how the truck is incorporated into their lives. And we learned many things, but of course, this is again, a it's a tool. It's kind of their ultimate tool in their lives and in work and in play and for their families. And so there's a, a few different dimensions here. <laughs> and in their work lives, it's a hub. It's where they centralize a lot of the work that they're doing. So if they're pulling up, for example, as a construction worker on a job site, the truck is their hub, the activity is circulating around there. They're using their truck to actually conduct work. They might have two by fours on the back of the truck um, and they're sawing them. They are doing some work inside the cab in between at different moments, whether they're taking a break to eat lunch, they are catching up on paperwork or with their devices to input data. 
And so they're, they're using these in a variety of ways. So we were really just observing again, exactly how they're using it. Because one of the things about research is, yes, you can ask people questions about how, what, but you really want that direct observation because sometimes what people say they do and what they actually do might be different things. And uh, we also try to look for the workarounds, like things that actually don't work really well, but they have interesting creative solutions for how to do that. Like people who are trying to access the back of their truck and they have a milk carton in the back and they pull it out and they step on it. And so what, you know, and we look at all of those things to understand, well, how could we make it a little bit easier or a little bit faster? Oh, so you're talking about one of those plastic sort of mesh things that yes. hold a number of containers of milk and they turn it over and they step on it to reach something. Exactly. Like, hey, maybe we can help you. And how did you fix that? Well, we actually have some extended running boards, uh, which are, you know, again, easy ways because it is a pain point to get access to the bed, especially in the front. Um, so it's like a quick step in to just pop up over, grab the thing and, and pull it out. So again, and we're looking at sometimes, these are examples of really simple ingenious solutions because one of the other things we learned about our truck customers is that they're not looking for gadgety things. They're looking for simple, robust tools and solutions that fit into their lives. So those were really some of our, like some of our key principles for how we pursued solutions. And of course, we're testing our ideas every step of the way. That's part of the process. Now, let me ask you, do you just go down, do you just pick a color, that's it? Or are there different versions of the F-150? There are actually <laughs> different versions and different lines that offer, um, I guess, more luxurious to more simplistic. And so there are uh, several different packages that you can buy with different types of capabilities. It does actually run the gamut of, of quite a few options. It might take me several minutes to <laughs> break those down, but there are a lot of options for our customers, you know, depending on what their needs are. You know, with these new features, it's like, what did you change? And uh, give us a few examples, at least. And how did you go about figuring out what to change and how? I'll talk a little bit about what we saw how people were using the cab. So we observed, again, at the work sites, people took breaks and they were huddling in there with other coworkers to review plans, make updates. We also observed that families were in there at times, you know, when they're out on their adventures, they might be at a campsite. Um, they take it as a place of shelter. And so they might play a game in there or do another activity as they're waiting for the weather to break. And in addition to that, everybody eats in their truck at some point in time. And the other really interesting thing from my perspective, because it was new information, I didn't realize this, is that every single person we talked to, and we didn't directly observe this, but they all mention it at some point in their behaviors as that they're mapping out kind of their lives and their journeys, they sleep in their trucks. And this was universally found. And, and again, this could be a cat nap on the job. It were families on road trips. They take long haul road trips together to get to their adventure spots that could be in very remote locations. And they're pulling off on the side of the road or at a rest stop. And 
I don't know, mom and dad need, you know, just at least a few hours before they can continue onwards. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty tough customers so that, you know, they're, they're like going to power through that 12 hour drive or 15 hour drive. And so, you know, we took all of that and said, well, what does that mean then for the interior? Well, we were looking to create, first of all, flat surfaces around the cab that would allow for people to easily eat, <laughs> to put uh, some paperwork out or roll out a plan or a schematic for a construction job. And so making it really adaptable and versatile for all those needs. If you could imagine, you know, again, you're rolling out big construction plans. You have a center console area that's flat. You can fold the seat flat, you've rolled it out. You're kind of huddling around the truck and you're, you're able to take a look at, at the plans and, and continue on with your day and your productivity. Did they make you go and sleep in the truck afterwards? <laughs> have you slept in a truck? Did I, you take a nap in the you know, truck, I, I have taken a nap in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the, the amazing things we did is, well, hey, if people really are having this behavior in their trucks, sleeping in their trucks, could we create a seat that folded flat, that allowed for a little bit, yes, really like flat. completely <laughs> flat so that people could rest well, rest properly. And, and again, this is not, what's so interesting too is, you know, people have, may have misconceptions about research. These are not things that people ask for, be like, could you please provide me? Um, and again, like people who drive trucks, again, they, they actually don't really complain. That's not really part of their persona and who they are. They're, very tough and, you know, like adaptable. However, you know, given the opportunity to lay flat and actually get proper rest is a pretty big bonus. And we've gotten an incredible uh, reception to this, um, this capability that's being introduced. People are really excited about it. This reminds me of when uh, Steve Jobs was asked if he did focus groups on all the products that they had. And you said, why would I do this? How will they know what they want until we show it to them? Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're kind of in that space. It's like, you mean you, you you can make this seat go flat? I can really sleep here. Yeah. <laughs> and also people might say, oh, that's nice, but I wouldn't pay for that. Like if you just ask it in that theoretical way, but once you actually have something like that and people start to imagine, I mean, the people I was talking to, like there are people I was observing who uh, worked at very remote um, sites out in oil fields in the middle of nowhere. And again, it took them a couple of days to drive sometimes to where their next site or location was. And, you know, having something like that is incredibly valuable um, asset essentially to them to be more productive ultimately at the end of the day. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Sandy Fershi, the lab director for D Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. And what about external to the cab on the outside of the Yeah. What we observe, of course, people are coming to and from work sites. And uh, depending on the time of year, it can be dark. Um, on either end of the day or both ends of the day, as we know in winter, where there's less um, daylight hours. And uh, so they're arriving, they're trying to set up for the day, they're getting their tools out, and they might be do starting to do some prep work. And so a couple things there, we're like, well, if this is their hub, 
how do we provide lighting so they can better see? So we have zone exterior lighting around the truck to be able to see you know, everything you're trying to do and at least have visibility around your areas. You're not tripping and falling and, but also, you know, being able to set up your, your tools for the day. We saw some workarounds such as carrying generators around the truck. Like, well, you know, we have the technology and capability to power vehicles. And so being able to plug in a tool in the bed of your truck and be able to use a power saw or, uh, whatever it might, whatever tool you need at that moment um, to do your job. And then another interesting piece of this was on the tailgate, kind of creating this scalable workbench, I'll call it, uh, that has a built-in ruler, uh, a place for your device to be held or propped up. Sometimes we even use that as a tool, cup holders, a pencil holder, um, and some clamps where you can just clamp down easily onto the, the back of the tailgate. So just again, like creating this simple workbench, again, robust, but you know, with really just clever integrations to make their lives easier. And ultimately, again, this is it becomes more of a robust tool for them and allows them to be more productive. And I could see these people, you know, these are kind of self-made people. We're building things. We've got it all here. And it's like, we, we're fine. We're fine. And it's like, actually, you know, now that we see how you're using it, we could make it better. Exactly. That's a very interesting observation. Yes, I'm feeling better yeah. about the design changes, by the way. You you were saying that also you were making some changes on the exterior for families? Well, I, I'll talk a little bit about what we observed in there. Because again, all the decisions we made ultimately, because you, know, you do have to make decisions. You can't necessarily do everything you might want to do to please customers because... Uh, that might make the truck so expensive, no one would buy it if you did everything. <laughs> and as a business, you have to make those decisions. So the important part was where you start to see the pattern. So what we observed in people's um, adventure and family life is, again, when they are going, they love to go out on adventures. They love to go out into the wild. And so they're going to these campsites. And again, you might arrive at dark. You have to set up camp. Well, guess what? Lighting is a really awesome um, way in which, you know, people could set up their camp by having the lighting around the truck, get their tents set up. Also, uh, inclement weather, I'll just add on, you know, you can get inside your truck and sleep if need be, um, if you find yourself in a bad situation. But also in the back too, people are bringing mini refrigerators with them camping. They need a place to plug those in. Uh, again, they were bringing generators to the campsites. Well, guess what? Now that's built in. So if people want to bring those, some people bring their, um, their TVs out into, um, on their camping excursions, they plug it in, put it on the back of their truck. And of course, in the tailgate setting, when people go tailgating, that's also a, a fun thing that we have observed that people have their, the TVs in the back. So again, we saw these patterns across the board and then you start to say, Hey, these are the areas we could focus on that are really going to make an impact. Now, I have to say, you know, Apple loves to put an eye in front of everything, you know, iPhone, iPad, and we in engineering design, we like to put a D in front of everything, like the D school at Stanford, or we've got D groups everywhere. Your D for Detroit, what does that mean? Great question. 
The D is really, of course, for design, um, because that's a big piece of it. But we did also identify a few other things that are important <laughs> that we represented through D, which is discovery, digital, daring, doing, <laughs> diversity. We had a number of things that um, you know we feel like in moving into the next stage of work and living and life that, you know, as far as bringing new products and services to life that we felt like the D represents, but first and foremost, it was meant to be designed. So D Ford is Ford's human centered design organization. And for those who may not intimately know human centered design, I'll just speak to it really simply simplistically, it's a way to creatively solve problems. And it's keeping people at the center of everything we do to solve that problem. And it really involves imagining and quickly creating possible solutions for the challenge at hand. And then it's about pursuing the best ones and bringing them to life into the world. And so, of course, it involves a few things if you unpack that, <laughs> meaning, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about that research that we do and spending time with customers. And ultimately, that's to uncover, you know, those, those observations and the insights and then seeing where the patterns are and identifying, you know, what those opportunity areas might be. What are the best opportunities to focus on? Um, and then, um, and then start to prototype, um, create, and we do that in very low fidelity ways and very quickly because you know we don't want to get too invested in any idea early on, but really just find a, a quick way to express the idea, build on it together as a team because of course once things get tangible, it's easier to react to it and to build on it with each other um, across a lot of different disciplines and lenses. Because of course, you know, bringing again, the diversity to the table of people with a variety of different experiences or expertise help make the ideas better. And then of course, again, just working to get the best solutions, the best solutions forward. Not everybody knows the term prototype, and it means you, you're building sort of a test model and you do it again and again. It's like great flatbed, you know, Sandy. But when I lay down, I hit my head on the handle. It's like, oh, yeah. that's not good. Exactly. <laughs> how tall, how, how wide, how whatever. And so there are so many of these things and they need a team that are not a whole bunch of like people, but different kinds of people. Sometimes they might be part of the D4 team, but oftentimes it's also experts across four because we have many incredibly talented folks across the organization with deep expertise, you know, for example, in seating or, um, and, and, and so in order to get to a fold flat seat, um, and, uh, and a, a fully flat seat that could be more like a sleeper seat that requires, you know, a lot of, a lot of detailed prototyping to get there. Now we might create the seedling for the idea and, um, and bring forth a, maybe a clumsy one, 
Or, you went, uh, you I know, know what you did. I know exactly. Yeah. You went down to the foam shop and started yes. carving. Away. Or just, oh, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what you did. <laughs> we just use foam core. We use foam core. You know, we're just trying to, ex- we are trying to express the idea. And, you know, obviously with some understanding of mechanics and whatnot, but that's when you start pulling in experts and say, well, this is the need. This is actually really, this could be really, um, this this could resonate really well with our customers. And this is why we observe these things. What can we do together? And that's when, you know, I, I feel like some of the more innovative solutions, because the other side of that too, as a business, is you you have to find some of the, something that's also business viable. Sandy Fershey is the lab director for D Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Brian Cully, CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics, describes cell therapy in simple terms and where the technology may take us. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Sandy Fershey, the lab director for D Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. I think it's interesting that it's D Ford Detroit, um, and of course that's you know the great American car center, automobile industry center. Um, and you're talking about user experience. Well, D Ford Detroit is not what's going on in you know Singapore and Beijing and or the west of Ireland or the deserts of Saudi Arabia and yet Ford is a global company how do you get the global user experience how does that factor in Yes we well D Ford has centers across the globe so we have folks in Palo Alto we have them in London we have them in Shanghai and Melbourne and in Brazil. So we've got centers in a few different, because of course we serve 
uh, markets all around the world. And so we are looking for, I mean, not only are we looking for what's common, but obviously we do create products and services that are much more tailored to the specific markets at hand. And so across all these different locations, we work to, to bring those things to life. Now, Ford has been around for over 100 years, and uh, it's got a corporate culture. I mean, it's been a long time since uh, uh, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, which is the original <laughs> original Model T coming off the first assembly line with Ford. They were all black. Uh, but at the same time, even though culture is, you know, it changes slowly. And you've got yeah. a legacy company, corporation there, uh, and all of this technology has gone on. All these things have changed. How do you change the culture of a company like Ford with design thinking, with human-centered design? Yes, a 117-year-old company. Um, and, you know, and, and we are in a big transformation and setting the stage for what's next um, to, to imagine some of the new products and services. You know, this is the big opportunity, but it requires different mindsets. It's pushing and testing the playbook of success historically, because when we have to push ourselves um, to disrupt ourselves rather than be disruptive, it requires new sets of behaviors. And so for D Ford, I feel like it's been about a catalyst to um, experiment with that, um, see how far we can push when we have small focused teams looking to address some of these big challenges or questions of the future. And again, when you get tangible and start to prototype um, and come to new solutions and you see that progression quickly because you're prototyping and iterating and getting feedback, I think that creates excitement um, and energy across the enterprise. And I feel like one of the biggest lessons learned is that I think once teams, and when I say teams, I mean cross-functional teams working together across a lot of different um, areas of expertise, that um, and they see that the results are better, they don't want to go back to working in the ways they had previously. It, it actually does kind of supercharge the situation and say, oh, okay, this was like, it felt energetic, it was fast, we got to a better solution, what's next? Now we're at a very difficult time, this period of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, I don't quite know what question I want to ask here. How has COVID impacted Ford? How has Ford responded to the pandemic? Is it just standing there waiting? Well, tell us about this. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest impacts when COVID hit and many things shut down was we had to shut down manufacturing. That's a massive a decision to have to make and to have to deal with as, as a company. It meant we can't produce vehicles and we can't sell them than what we had planned to produce. So that's a pretty serious situation. Um, what was, you know, interesting, fascinating about that is, um, you know, it's pretty much in Ford's DNA to say, well, how can we help? Like we did have to shut down, but we just thought, wow, the, the world is going through something very serious. Is there anything we can do to help? And 
so people started raising their hands and we we did learn that uh, we had a shortage of um, you know, personal protection um, for some of our healthcare workers and other frontline workers. And it, there was a question raised, like, who can help? And Ford said, we can help. Um, you know, we, and what was interesting is we had a small focus D4 team because they said, well, we can help because um, you, we want to make personal protective equipment. Okay. And so within 72 hours of identifying that need or a way in which we could help, we went from uh, uh, creating actually something that we could ship to, we had 10,000 face shields available within 72 hours that we could actually start distributing. Wait a minute, you went from design to product to ship yep. in 72 hours? Yes. Well, I guess you weren't making cars. You had a lot you could do. <laughs> No, we weren't making cars and we felt like, you know, in a, in a limited way, again, with the right protections in place for people who wanted to volunteer, um, you know, our unions, people stepped forward and raised their hands. It was incredible. Um, you know, once we came up with a, a prototype solution, then it's, you know, working with like, well, what's, what materials do we have on hand that we can utilize? We got really creative about how to best use the materials we had on hand and could start assembling and, and potentially shipping these out. So it was a, a really incredible turnaround um, it, you know, to, to help out in a, a, a pretty, in a time of need. And, and again, I feel like that's not something new. We did actually several things during that time, including partnering with GE on ventilators, and with 3M and a powered air purifying respirator, the Pappers. Uh, we also worked on hospital gowns and, and some testing kits. We did jump in in a variety of ways. And then of course, specifically these face shields where DFord was really helping to get that prototype. And we, you know, we went out and did some research with, um, with hospital workers and doctors and surgeons, got some quick information and we were all distributed by them too, because the office was shut down. So we're on our, our conference call, our video conference calls, prototyping, showing each other solutions and, and building on those ideas quickly. And then, and taking that and running it and working with the rest of the, the rest of Ford to be able to distribute that. And that's the, the beauty of a company like Ford to be able to create something at scale so quickly. Well, Sandy, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you coming and talking with me. Hope you come back and see me again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great honor and I would love to come back sometime. Thank you so much. My guest today is Sandy Fershey, the lab director for D Ford Detroit at Ford Motor Company. More information is available at d.ford.com. That's the letter d.ford.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We've all heard about cell therapies and stem cells and their amazing potential. One San Diego company is working on dry, age-related macular degeneration, spinal cord injury, and the possibility of creating a lifetime protection against COVID. I thought we should start with some simple explanations. Brian Cully is the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics in San Diego. Well, cell therapy involves the use of whole cells to treat 
disease and, and different conditions. So cell therapy is a very broad term. Uh, within cell therapy, there's an idea of stem cells. Now, stem cells are unique. These are cells that have not yet differentiated. They haven't become bone cells or kidney cells or brain cells. They harbor the potential to become any kind of cell in the body. So a lot of investigators and a lot of companies are working with stem cells because they harbor some very special or unique properties. At Lineage, we use stem cells as starting material, and from that starting material, we can manufacture all of the different cell types in your body, such as retina cells or spinal cord cells or immune cells. Are there any approved products in this area? Yeah, there are absolutely a a bunch of approved cell therapy products in this country. In fact, cell therapy has led to a whole field of uh, treating cancer called immuno-oncology, where we're using whole cells in the patient to help fight tumors. And it it has been incredibly transformative. And I think what the industry and the field is looking to do is find new and additional ways to harness the power and potential of cell therapy for other conditions and diseases. How long have you been working on this? How long have people been working on this? Well, the use of cells to try to treat the patient, it goes back, uh, you know, longer than me. (laughs) But I would say that what's really been interesting is that in the last 10 or 15 years, the field has started to really understand how to harness the cell. So in order to have a product, you've got to be able to tackle really straightforward aspects of cell delivery, the manufacturing of cells. It has to be consistent. Um, It's not like using a small molecule or an antibody. The cells respond to their environment. And so I really think the last five to 10 years has been where there have been some incredible achievements in understanding how to use these cells and to start to advance cell therapy from an interesting technology into a true branch of medicine that we understand how best to deploy it and how best to use it at the patient's bedside. I remember, and I want to say it's 2004, we had a California state proposition. It funded $3 billion for stem cell research. And it was unprecedented, really, for a state to uh, vote to have that kind of money into research. We often think of that as a federal effort that would be putting money behind it, much less significant money. Um, And then, of course, recently on the ballot, we had Proposition 14, which passed. That put $5.5 billion in. Does any of that tie in with your efforts? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, our spinal cord program wouldn't exist if it weren't for the help of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, So they received about $3 billion back in 2004 to fill a void. Uh, There's a, a federal void in funding of cell therapies and stem cell approaches. And so the voters of California stepped in and said, well, we'd we'd like to see what can come from this. And I know that CIRM has funded more than 50, five zero clinical trials since that time. And it's wonderful, not just for lineage cell therapeutics, but for all of the companies that are working in cell therapy to see that the voters were satisfied with the progress that had been made, the discoveries, the exciting impact that had occurred in patients and elected to approve another $5 billion plus for the continuation of this important work. So it, it's an incredible achievement, and uh, the field is, is fortunate to have California uh, voters behind it in this way. 
Now, let's talk about some of the efforts you're working on, because you've got a number of efforts going on here. Um, Let's start with dry age-related macular degeneration. Now, describe that and tell us where you are on it. So dry age-related macular degeneration, or dry AMD, is a condition where specialized cells in the eye to specialized retina cells, they die off. And we don't really know why they die off. And so our approach is that we can manufacture, outside of the body, we can manufacture billions and billions of these specialized cells. So we start with stem cells, and then we direct their lineage, hence the name. The, the cells, the stem cells, have the ability to become any of the 200 cell types in your body. They have that information within them. And what we do is we coax them and we direct them to differentiate only into retina cells. And then we transplant those retina cells into the patient's eye so that they can take over for the cells that had died and are lost. And in doing so, we're trying to preserve the vision or in cases we've already seen, have been able to bring back vision that was lost through the death of these specialized retina cells. Now, I know you're in clinical trials. What, tell us what you're doing. Tell us where you are in that. Well, we just recently completed a phase 1-2A clinical trial in dry AMD. It had 24 patients. Uh, the first 12 of those patients, they were all legally blind. So it was really a safety component of that study to make sure that the treatment was well tolerated. Uh, And then we moved on after the first 12 into the second 12 patients. And these are people whose disease wasn't quite as advanced. They had uh, a greater chance of recovery or benefit from our therapy. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen quite striking signs of individuals who had improved vision, improved reading speed, the the area of atrophy or the wound in the back of the eye in one case got smaller. And that's incredible because that's something that no one has ever shown with traditional approaches. No small molecule or no antibody has ever shown that it could reduce the area of injury in dry AMD. The only way you can do that is by transplanting new cells. And, and we're the first company to ever show that that's possible. So it's an great example of how cell therapy may be able to accomplish things that traditional approaches cannot. Okay, how do you get the cells in the back of the eye? Uh, The same way you get a lot of stuff inside of people, it's a sharp needle. Um, but the oh, patient boy. doesn't feel a thing. <laughs> they, you don't feel a thing. It's uh, No nerves no, back there. <laughs> that's right. No nerves. It's about a 25-minute surgery. And no immune cells. I mean, that, that's one of the things when people talk about cell therapy, they say, oh, if you're going to put cells from some other source into the body, your body's going to reject them. We've seen zero cases out of 24, zero cases where the patient has rejected the cells. We can see them now for more than four years in the first Uh, first patient ever on our study. The cells are still there. We can, the beautiful thing about the eye is you can look inside of it and you can see what's going on. So we can see that our cells are still resident in these patients. They've engrafted, they've become part of the host. They have not been rejected and they seem to be doing the job of normal retina cells. They're taking over for that job and providing benefits in, in many of our patients. And when they're in there, they continue to live and survive and divide and go on as normal cells do? Yeah, that's correct. So one treatment or one set of treatments, you expect this is going to continue. I I think that's right. It's a little early for us to say with absolute certainty, but it looks to us that one or maybe a few treatments would be very durable, which which is wonderful. If you think about 
uh, wet macular degeneration, which is the other kind of macular degeneration, the way that we treat that today is with an injection. So a patient goes and gets an injection, a needle poked into their eye every single month. And there are people working on trying to get those to be less frequent. And, and sometimes people skip them. There's very poor compliance with that, with that therapy. So if we could bring a treatment that instead of being a monthly treatment or every other month or quarterly, if it could be one time or a couple of times and that's it for your life, that would be an extraordinary change in how we approach the treatment of dry age-related macular degeneration. There's got to be a lot of excitement at the FDA about this. Are you strategizing the future trials? How are they, how are they being considered? Uh, that's a great question because that's the next step. Now that we have completed enrollment of 24 patients in the early safety study, and now that we have seen some signs of a positive effect in these patients, uh, we're going to follow them up for a few months, and then we're going to go and speak with FDA and talk about how best to design the next study and what that would look like. And then we would presumably uh, open up sites and enroll those patients, collect that data, and, and hopefully, eventually, we would be able to prove that this approach, it could very well be the first approval in this area because right now there's nothing approved for dry AMD patients despite it being one of the leading causes of blindness around the world. Now let's talk about another therapy you're working on and that's spinal cord injury. A lot of people have tried that. What are you doing in this area? Uh, this is this one is really emotional. Um, so you're right. A lot of people have tried to help patients who have suffered a spinal cord injury, and there are about 18,000 of those injuries every year in this country. And it's very sad because it's often young people who are out there enjoying life, and the you know maybe a, a mountain biking accident or a surfing accident. Uh, so people have tried really hard to see if they can uh, grow axons. Those are the the the, the nerves that are responsible for connecting your spinal cord with your brain and helping you have motion and in particular motion in your in your fingers and, and your upper extremities and um, one of the challenges is that growing axons just doesn't seem to be enough there, you need to do more and so what we do is we replace the cells that have died off so after an injury after a, a contusion or a crush injury to the spinal cord um, there's a healing process, and in, in connection with that healing process, there's inflammation, and, th and that can kill cells. And so many of your spinal cord cells will be killed off. And so just like in our retina program, we'll manufacture the cells that are required. We're, we manufacture uh, cells that are called oligodendrocytes, and those are a special form of spinal cord cells, and we inject those into the patient. And we're looking to replace the ones that have died off, and we're hoping through the, the concept of nerves that wire together, fire together. Together. We, we provide the wiring and the insulation, and in doing so, we are hoping to make new and strong connections between the brain and the upper extremities so that we can have patients that have uh, independence, independence in the form of being able to feed themselves, being able to uh, operate their own wheelchairs, being able to operate their cell phones. The quality of life changes and improvements that are possible by helping individuals with spinal cord injury in this way are really exciting. And, and they don't just change the individual and their caregivers, but also the system. It's very expensive. 
expensive for individuals who have no functional operation of their arms and legs to be cared for by by society. And so um, there are economic drivers here and there's uh, social drivers here. And, and it really is an exciting opportunity to try to bring a new approach, to bring a cell therapy approach to a field that has, has struggled with small molecules as therapeutics. Meaning taking a pill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, um, you know, it's it's great in movies to, you know, Dr. Xavier takes a pill and gets up and walks out of his chair or something like that. And, and you know, that's fine. But, you know, the reality is small incremental improvements can have a massive change. I spoke to a young man who was one of the participants in our clinical trial, spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about just having a little bit of a waggle in his finger. And that allowed him to grasp a coffee cup and be able to you know drink from it without help. And so uh, really small changes can actually have profound differences in the day-to-day existence of people who have suffered from these unfortunate accidents. Now you're in phase one, two on this one as well. Uh, what exactly are you doing? Yeah, it's very similar to the retina program. We've had 25 people who have been treated with our uh, with our cells, the spinal cord cells, which we manufacture, and we followed them up for a long time. All but one of the patients had a successful engraftment. So again, the cells are resident, they're stable, they're not continuing to divide and cause problems, they're not being rejected by the patients. So the tolerability of the therapy has been very high. And uh, we've seen some really remarkable benefits in, in a number of these patients. Um, we have a young man who was a quadriplegic and uh, he's able to type 40 words a minute. Uh, that That's incredible to go from essentially no mobility to 40 words a minute is absolutely life-changing. And he's not alone. It's, it's not an anecdote. Uh, there are several individuals who had very poor prognosis after their injury and we treated them about one to two months after their injury and um, when we measure them at 6, 12, and two years out, uh, they've got significant improvement. And we think it's more improvement than you would expect on their own without treatment. And that's the key is adding to that improvement, getting them more mobility and function back. Now, the final one I want to talk about, I think you're in, we're also working in cancer. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We have a cancer program as well. We manufacture a third kind of cell. We manufacture dendritic cells. And dendritic cells perform an important function for your immune system. They're actually the information carriers. They are, the, they, they are responsible for picking up foreign material in your body and presenting it to your immune system. So we all have hopefully strong, healthy immune systems, but we have to engage them. We have to educate the immune system and tell it what it needs to do. And that job is performed by the dendritic cell. So what we do is we pre-package specific information. Maybe it's tumor information or or maybe it's uh, infectious disease information. We take a little bit of protein and we put it inside millions and millions of dendritic cells, which we manufacture. And then we inject those into the patient. And now that patient has millions of messengers running around in their body screaming, this is what you need to do to your immune system. And then the immune system picks up that information and says, ah, now that I know who to go attack, you know, I know what a tumor cell looks like now, that it boosts your immune system and helps you fight the foreign material 
whether that's foreign material from a tumor or foreign material from an outside source. And so it is a third related application where we manufacture a third specific cell type and then deploy that where it's needed in the body to treat that particular disease. We've treated six patients and we're really happy that we have reported that we're seeing very high levels of what's called immunogenicity. So the information which we are packaging into our cells and delivering to the patient is being picked up by the patient's immune system, in fact, at a very high level. And that is encouraging because that to us provides some evidence that the mechanism or our approach has validity. And so we intend to continue forward enrolling these patients. And we're working with a, a very large cancer charity on that right now. And, and it's very exciting as the data continues to roll off. If I correctly see the commonality here is you start with stem cells capable of becoming any kind of cells. And what LCTX does is it takes those cells uh, and, and is able to force them or coerce them or move them into specific cells in the body. And that's your unique ability. That is that is part of of your intellectual property, we often like to say. Is that right? That's correct. And and that's actually an incredibly important distinction. We don't ever put a stem cell into a human being. Stem cells for us are simply starting material. Just like flour can lead to a cookie or it can lead to a cracker. Uh, a stem cell for us is the flour. It's the starting material. And then we, we have the special recipe. That's our intellectual property. That's our know-how. We have the recipe to take those stem cells and from those, we can manufacture highly specialized and differentiated retina cells or spinal cord cells or immune cells. And then we just do transplant medicine from there. We're just transplanting the cells that your body needs. And so that's, that's how we're a stem cell company. Now, does any of this have uh, application in, in, in some area of dealing with uh, the current COVID crisis? Yeah, it certainly could. In fact, we had a we had a meeting with Barta not too long ago to talk about uh, a new potential application in which we would use our dendritic cells and we would put uh, instead of putting tumor information and loading that information at the dendritic cell, we would provide uh, infectious disease information, meaning the, the the proteins that identify COVID or coronavirus, and you could put coronavirus. Uh, uh, pieces of coronavirus into dendritic cells and then present that to the immune system. And the reason why that would be unique compared to what's out there is that most of what's out there is focused on generating antibodies. Let's get antibodies to kill the virus, uh, kill the cells that are harboring the virus. But what we would be doing is we would be providing a, a, a surge of information to your immune system, which would help drive forward what are called memory B cells. So how do you establish long-term protection? Because we know that antibodies fade over time, over three, six months, those antibody levels go down and you're susceptible. So how do we get a, a lifetime protection? Well, you need B cells. You need memory T cells and B cells. And so that was one of the ideas that, that we might have had. And, and we're thinking about applying for some grant funding to, to continue that work. So it's just, it's a lovely example of how, you know, new things come up and you can figure out ways that cell therapy might be able to do things that traditional approaches, in this case, traditional vaccination might not be able to provide. Well, Brian, this has been terrific. I hope you'll come back and uh, see us again. It would be my pleasure. There's going to be more to talk about for sure. For sure. My guest today is Brian Cully. He's the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics in San Diego. More information is available at lineagecell.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.